Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Passage Press has just released the Passage Prize Volume 3. With $20,000 in cash prizes for the survivalist guide to the current year. So if you go to passage.press, whose link will be in the show notes, you'll be able to find out the guidelines and the submission deadline for this year's Passage Prize. There have been two so far, and we've given out thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in cash prizes. And uh, one of the contestants has actually led to a Passage Press book deal that was just recently announced he comes to you today as one of three guests we have the three winners from passage prize volume one uh three of the four winners excuse me the categories are fiction nonfiction, poetry and visual arts and today we bring you the fiction nonfiction, and visual arts winners from uh passage prize one charles wide dog and vn ebert so we talk about their experience of making art, making art in the digital age, uh, their experience finding out about Passage Press, submitting to the prize, and winning, and what they've gone on to do afterwards. So if you think you have what it takes to become a Passage Press winner and get your work published in the beautiful volumes that they put out, they're $275 of exclusive limited run editions, hardcover. And Passage Press actually just put out the Passage Prize Volume 2 in paperback. So if you want to see your work in full color, submit now. You must submit. Passage.press and Astroflight Simulation Podcast. The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shibats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover a golden god if we reach the side of the ocean floor. I want to talk to you guys about your work in general, um, as well as the experience of entering the Passage Prize and winning the Passage Prize, what that was like and um would be great if some of the people here were aspiring passage prize entrants maybe they entered the first or second contest and didn't win and want to try again or if you entered and you didn't get first place uh please request the mic before the question and answer section uh, and you can talk before we get to the end, to the question and answer section. So I don't know how much time these guys have. And I, w- I would like to, to have a general discussion, but I would also like to give each guy their own, uh, g- give each guy the floor for a minute to talk about their work. And I don't really feel the need to start with one person over the other, except that Wide Dog just uh, put out a video a really interesting video. I don't even know what to call it, Wide Dog. This, uh, I mean, Twitter spec ad, but uh, do you want to talk about that at all? Sure, I'd love to. Um, yeah, it was an animation I made. Um, I'm in, I do computer animation by trade. That's uh, my uh, normie job. Um, and how I got um, kind of my pathway into being a digital artist um i made this spec ad with um kind of collaborated with lomez and um 
disgraced uh, propagandist um, uh, follow him. He's great. Who has started his own kind of anti-global homo design marketing agency who I can't recommend strongly enough. Um, and uh, he kind of wanted to um, uh, put something together to attract people's attention about like kind of the capabilities of like kind of what can be done uh, when like the, and what the talent pool in kind of uh, it, like outside the normal, like um, kind of design marketing agency, very narrow uh, leftist um, uh, talent pool, what can be done outside that and make a piece to attract attention and to like, get the attention of clients which it has done and uh, i hope it continues that's to good do. to know yeah I, I like that description that's kind of what passage prize is doing i mean what pass what passage mm -hmm. prize is doing is like unprecedented i mean certainly there's precedent for literary and artistic prizes to try to get new creators and undiscovered people inspired to work hard and to make something new and to expose them to a wider audience that might otherwise not see them. But uh, mm -hmm. the fact that Passage is doing it both multimedia, which is really cool, but uh, yeah. of course the really important thing about Passage is the current environment, the current stifling uh, communistic propaganda environment where you know Passage Prize comes in the wake of years of iconoclasm and just not only like tearing down authors whose work is out now who are working now but exhuming the corpses of our most revered authors and artists uh and 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 sort of putting them on posthumous trial to try to uh besmirch their name in a way to destroy art so that the people working now who have no talent uh have have I was going to say a level playing field, but really what they want is like a wide open playing field where there's no competition but themselves. So, mm -hmm. of course, this creates a black hole in culture. And uh, Lomez, mm -hmm. you know, I wonder if he'd ever tell the story of the birth because the whole thing's anonymous. He might not. But whatever he did, I don't know the story myself. I don't even know anyone who knows the story. Uh, what I, I don't know it either. I've talked to him about, about Passage and like plans for the future and things like that, but I don't know the genesis of well, it. Well, he's a visionary. That's, we can say that for sure, uh, because he saw this wide-open, uh, gaping black hole void in culture, and he found the, the right way to fill it. So I'm hoping, mm -hmm. I'm hoping we are all talking, you know, 10 years from now about the 10th Annual Passage Prize. So, yes, the spec ad... Yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, just real quick, I... I was just going to say, let's keep it going. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I was going to ask you to put or someone to put this spec ad in the marquee so people can watch it later. Don't watch it now uh, because it's like, what is it, like a minute long? Uh, but it's great and it yeah, really it, shows off Wide Dog's talent. Like it's crazy how good it is. Crazy how good it is. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, to kind of jump off what you were saying, something that comes to mind is like uh, um, Kefefe Anon has a uh, great poster, has a kind of refrain, uh, which is that the woke is more correct than the mainstream. 
one of the ways I've noticed that personally is that uh, when I was in um, when I was in school uh, and uh, the art school, uh, I went to art school. Early red pill was just uh, the experience in art school. But anyway, they had like just kind of general propagandistic narratives. And one of the things they really ra railed against was this like a rejection of the idea that artists are lone geniuses, which I, uh, that lone geniuses exist like in history. It's basically an anti great man theory. And I disagree with that. I am very much a, a, a proponent of a great man theory of history, but they do have a point, which is to say that um, art, when you think of like great artists in the past, they aren't alone and they always come out of a scene. Uh, there's always a scene around an artistic movement, an artistic style. And uh, I think the cool thing about Passage Prize is it kind of like brings together the um, people in a scene that's been kind of underground. Um, it, it's kind of weird being the um, visual art person because I definitely think the strength of the scene is writing. And uh, I think uh, Vian Ebert and uh, Charles's pieces speak to that. Uh, I think they're stronger representations of, of the scene than than my visual art, but I do my best. Um, but yeah, anyway, I think it solidifies a, a scene which like kind of internet culture is, uh, the, the internet right is kind of, can kind of be resistant against that and rightfully so, because it's often coming from a place of like people outside of the scene trying to pick like milk toasts examples. But this is very much coming from like self-selected, like Lomez isn't coming from outside trying to water it down. Yeah. Fantastic insights. That's absolutely correct. Um, good way to fuse the, sort of autistic lone genius uh, working himself blind in his studio alone, but also the uh, sort of um, indispensability of this like flourishing group, N not a group. I don't like, I don't, not a group, not a scene uh, environment, I guess we can call it artistic milieu of people who are inspiring each other, uh, you know, and you see it happening here. You see it happening here. I'm actually, one of the questions I have for you guys is who and what are your inspirations? But you talk, like I talked to on PCM a couple weeks ago and, you know, he couldn't stop singing the praises of zero and VN here as guys who inspired him. Um, so I just think that it's inevitable if that we keep this, uh, energy and momentum going, that we're going to start seeing some great work. And now I like that you said that the backbone of it is literature. I agree with that, but I do think if it's going to really reach and affect a lot of people, video is important. And why dog you commented on a tweet recently of mine that, uh, you think if, if, if we have any aspirations for like spreading our ideas to the point where it like really takes over culture in a, in a sort of disseminated way. Um, Cause I, you know, I talk about, I talk a big game about like, we need a whole generation of people who are like red pilled, you know, and that to get there, you need a couple generations to get there. And I think you were advocating that video and movies is the way to go. But I don't think, I, you know, I want you to talk more about that, but I don't think you can start there because there's too much work. There's too much overhead. It's too much, you yeah, know, no, you can't, yeah. can't start there. So, yeah. Hey, yeah. I, I just think that um, 
kind of just movies are the stickiest thing. The thing that gets you there is narrative. So uh, literature is the, you'd start with stories, uh, written stories, um, and uh, and then you'd need people to adapt those into like things that capture your memory uh, and kind of are foundational, like just reference points for like um, in the, uh, in his forward or like his forward to his judging ZHP um, wrote a whole like um, explanation about um, the meta narratives of a story. And I think that those are what I, I think that really rang true to me. And um, that kind of shapes people's thinking about uh, everything is just kind of the the morality baked into stories. It, um, and that movies are kind of the stickiest thing that uh, we have going right now. What, what, I that, think I know um, what you mean, but what do you, what do you mean by stick, sticky? Yeah. You said that twice now. Uh, well, I, yeah, I for lack of a better term, I mean just um, kind of cultural reference points. People get their um, maybe some people get that more from novels, um, but I think in general, people remember the kind of have more visceral memories of movies um, and kind of movie storytelling than other forms of media. Yeah. Um, Maybe kind I of. don't want to eat up all well, the, I don't want to eat up the whole space here. <laughs> go ahead, Vian. Oh, sorry. Um, Maybe kind of the zeitgeisty and also hey, kind of universal. Yeah, that's totally. that's where all the cultural focus is on, especially. I mean, it's kind of always been. Uh, film superseded the novel. I guess probably I don't know when the seventies, maybe after, maybe even before that, in television. Television, even more importantly. but uh, So that's where all the cultural focus is. But the hard work, I think, is worked out in literature first. It, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, the movie is like you just need all the talent pools to come yeah. together. It's like an incredibly difficult undertaking. Like I've made – I make short films and those are hard enough. So listen, I should have said this in the beginning. I do want to go one by one for each of you guys and focus on your work individually. But I don't want you just sitting there twiddling your thumbs waiting for the other two to go. So please, um, if we're not focusing on you, Charles or Vienne, raise your hand if you want to interject and gladly we can do so. Um, just because I want to like really uh, – I I want to I want to elaborate because because you know I looked at this book when I first got it and went through everything and then I went through it again for this space and it really stood out to me like why you guys got first place I think the judges made the right choices um, the follow up winners were fantastic the the number two short story is phenomenal. Um, and there's lots of editors picks and stuff that are great, but going through again and looking at your guys work, it's like, okay, like, yeah, the judges really knew what they were doing. This, this, these guys are, uh, really at the top of their, at the top of their game. So why Doug, let's talk about your piece specifically now that won the prize. And again, Charles and VN. Uh, I was going to, I was going to say, I've been, I've been talking, I've been talking a lot already. All I'd right. love to hear from the then other guys, let, uh, v- <laughs> from Charles and right. VN. We'll come back to you then. VN, go ahead. Uh, you, 
Cool. Sounds good. Thank you. And also, I kind of wanted to say at some point, I'm probably the time-limited person here because I've probably got about an hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes before I've oh, got that... to leave. So sorry, I should have told you that before this all no, started. No, good to know. Good to know. So um, uh, I have questions for you, but you can, if you had something to say in response to what we were saying first, go ahead. Oh, sure. My, my thought, especially when it comes to writing, it's definitely a lot easier to be a lone short story writer or novelist and as lone movie maker, just it's something that does kind of fit, um, kind of the, it, it's, it's a very solitary activity in some ways. And you can also do it on, you know, a lo- a, it's cheap. Like it's pretty cheap and easy to lock yourself in your room and start writing. And also I, I definitely, I agree that the scene is incredibly helpful. I know I've been much more productive as a writer since, since winning, um, partly because, just kind of a sense that there is an audience out there. There is a way that sort of the, that the demand does create a supply to, to some extent. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, when did you start writing? How, how long have you been writing for? Oh, that's a great question. Um, off and on for a long time. Um, I would say last, trying to figure out when I actually wrote the story I submitted, uh, probably last four or five years, I got to a point where I was good enough that I would start trying to like put it out somewhere, if that makes sense. I think I was one of those kind of annoying creative kids who were trying like write poetry when they were like in middle school or something. And I, I hope all that has been destroyed by the passage of time and things being thrown out because it's all incredibly embarrassing at this point. But <laughs> I've probably been writing kind of all my life to some extent and have um, been Definitely, there comes a point when you kind of hit enough practice and stuff starts to click and you can kind of like start producing stuff that you don't feel embarrassed putting out in the world. Or at least I hope I shouldn't feel embarrassed putting out in the world. Saying so much of a compliment on the story. Um, yeah, so, so then this wasn't your first piece. And I remember Lomez was saying that a lot of the stuff that submitted for the first prize, last year's prize, looked like it was stuff that people had around a while uh i got that backwards i think he said the first one was the first thing people had written the second one much more polished much more uh clear that these people had been working on it for longer uh point being he thinks i think i I don't know if he has this confirmed or not actually i think he wants to come in so i'm going to get him in a second uh i think he thinks that the first passage prize was people writing for the first time to enter the prize, which I think is one of the points of the, of the, of the prize, right. To get people who weren't otherwise creating to start creating and also to get those like VN who had been writing to hone their skill. Now um, your story is called Georgia Buddha. I don't know how much you want to give away about this. Is this available elsewhere? I've been been on your Uh. website. I don't remember seeing it there. No, right, right now it's not, and I think Lomez, I don't want to say Lomez told me not to put it on my website, but he maybe told me not to put it on my website, um, and there's some discussion about when that will get released um, in kind of a different format down the road. I'm still kind of trying to figure out what that looks like, I think um, Lomez is also trying to figure out what that looks like. Um, I think he 
feels like he has a winner here, so he doesn't want to let go of it so quickly. Yeah, well, I think there's there's a path to getting this out there to people without ruining the uh, the provenance of the book. But, uh, yeah. you know, that's up to Lomez, who I'm trying to get in here. I think he's coming. That would be great. He would give a lot of good insight to some of the stuff I've, I've been speculating about. Um, Absolutely. So... It's so crazy. I don't know if we're going to, we won't have time to really talk about this, but I just want to throw this out there that the fact that this book is so exclusive and so hard to get is part of the selling point, right? You're, you're not just, it's, it's almost like a, a charitable purchase in a way because you're helping them fund the prize by putting your money into it. So you can feel good about it in that way. But what you're getting in return is exclusivity. You're getting exclusive access to this content, which is, you know, with a couple exceptions and really like BAP and Zero HP Lovecraft, and that's about it. Uh, you're getting the best work coming out of the sphere in this book. And I, you know, I'm expecting that to be true about the second book as well. You know, I'm talking too much. Um, this is this is my my problem. So I want VN, can you tell us as much as you're comfortable about the story? I think we should talk a, a bit about it without giving it away. Oh that that's probably that makes good sense. Uh, so story is about a guy who I really should probably prepare more for this than I did. Um, so the story is about um, kind of family patriarch um sort of a big daddy character um if i start quoting tennessee williams at length just tell me i'm doing that is it's that habit of mine that um whose son goes off to berkeley um and comes back and has essentially has changed his name sort of done a fake conversion to buddhism because it's roughly 1968 um, because I don't think I've ever managed to actually date one of my stories, because they all seem to take place roughly between 1950 and 1969, um, that, um, with the exception of ones which clearly are taking place in the Civil War, um, God, I'm all over the place already, that, um, so, Sun comes back as fake convert to Buddhism, and essentially a conflict between the, um, essentially the much more stable and, um, and essentially much more capable father and the son that ends in essentially the father having the kind of sort of quasi-religious experience that the son who's kind of so deep in kind of his own kind of navel gazing kind of sort of you know hippie-ish mentality they can't actually have kind of like in a way the the trick of it is flipping the narrative the conventional narrative of the son being the enlightened one the kind of you know the hippie the um, kind of liberal or, well, I guess it's 1968-ish, so kind of just the hippie, the kind of lefty son is not the hero here. It's instead the much more kind of Dixiecrat father is the, is the one who seems to actually have his life together, which I think made it appropriate for this book and has also turned into a weird Rorschach test because everyone who read this um, thought that the dad was the hero and then the normies in my life the few who have actually seen it all said oh wait the son's the hero isn't he uh, which has been kind of an interesting I, I could see a normie trying to read this as the son was like the victim of the father but yeah the traditional story in hollywood and in novels and stuff is that like the hippie movement and the hippie era helped liberate people from the stifling 
conservatism of their backwards traditional parents. Whereas uh, everyone knows, at least everyone in our sphere knows that the reality is that it was like an empty promise that uh, didn't really lead anywhere positive for the, the individuals or for America. Or of course, uh, it was a lot of it was also tourism and these people uh, became normies after a stint as hippies. But in your story, the son takes on the name of Siddhartha, which the father thinks is ridiculous. And he's living in like a destitute uh, uh, commune commune that hasn't really gotten off the ground. And uh, I don't think there's any running water and there's a lot of mud and they're not taking care of the animals. Or I don't even think they have animals yet um, beyond a couple of chickens or something. But they're all... Yeah, they're, they're, they're talking they're, a big game, though, about what they're going to do. But the father gets there and sees they clearly aren't capable of making any of this happen. But the interesting thing about the story, sort of the, the hinge upon which the story turns, is the fact that Siddhartha's mother is dead. And you find this out in the very beginning, so I don't mind sharing that. No, no. And that's a, a point of contention between the two of them that drives the conflict of the story. And you know, brings it to a head. I, I don't know how much you want to reveal about that. No, that, so the, essentially it's a son blames father for death of the mother, kind of a dynamic and, and sort of playing through that. When, when the father was with the mother and they had the son, they were very, very poor. And the father went on to yes. become a millionaire and the son kind of felt like it was some sort of betrayal. Yeah, or kind of a way that the son has never handled any element of the death and well, has never just handled anything in his life particularly well. And this is sort of the kind of the thing on which he kind of lays the whole kind of kind of the whole guilt trip kind of component of it. So, I mean, can we throw out some like, um, can we liken this to anything? The style? Do Do you have any inspiration? Any particular inspiration? You mentioned Tennessee Williams. Um, oh, sure, sure. Um, so big. So I like Tennessee Williams. Um, a lot of influence from Flannery O'Connor. I think there's a religious component in my work, which I kind of. I, I am not Flannery O'Connor uh, either religiously or stylistically, but there's an influence there. Um, I like kind of a Southern Gothic types so again Flannery O'Connor but also um, like Faulkner I don't think I write like Faulkner it's it's difficult to write like Faulkner and have anyone read you <laughs> um, and then kind of an eclectic grab bag of influences I like sort of the old kind of crime novelist kind of the noirish um, genre fiction writers I love Jim Thompson I think there's a strong um, and not in this story necessarily but in some of my other work there's a very strong um, I'm sorry, I'm seeing a little note here. Um, oh, I think some uh, Gaston Narvel, who I'm sorry, I'm, I know I'm mispronouncing your name. You followed me for a while. Called this um, "Hillbilly Buddhist," which is actually about about as good as um, anybody's managed to describe my work. Well, it's <laughs> so it's good. Everything you just named, I think the one that's most immediately apparent to me is Flannery O'Connor. Absolutely correct. The way she handles race relations and intergenerational relations and the sort of um, invasion of ideas from the wider world into the microcosm of the South uh, is very similar to yours. And I didn't even see that until you said it. 
But now it's so obvious. There's even a really great story about a guy who goes away to college. <clears throat> I can't remember the name of it now. And he comes back and he's like really embarrassed by his mom who's like provincial. And, and, oh, and... yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bother me, but I'm not going to be able to remember this offhand. I'm going to do some quick Googling. And it's eventually the, mo- the mother yes, dies. Yes. It's a fantastic story. And this story is very reminiscent of that. And I didn't even see it until just now. It's in it's in the uh, collection. Everything that rises must converge. Yes, it is. Um, it might be. Sorry, if I'm now if I'm just quickly checking my way through it. Uh, it is, in fact, everything that rises uh, must converge. Is the uh, title of the collection. Of the highly recommended story to read, and it's definitely worth reading in in tandem with uh, Georgia Buddha. So now you you I read this other story by you that I of course am blanking on the name, but I have it here. I'll look it up in a second. But uh, you have a penchant for writing these very powerful, manly Southern characters who, you know, if I'm going to liken them to, to someone, it immediately comes to mind as Cormac McCarthy's uh, manly Southern sort of cowboy characters. Um, and this guy's name is Buddy Stonewall Jackson. So it's immediately evoking, you know, one of the most badass heroes of the South. Um, so you're clearly trying to call back to this type of man who may still be around but has definitely fallen out of favor in mainstream culture today. Are you conscientiously trying to revive this uh, form of manliness? This archetype? Uh, well, uh, uh, the archetype, sure. I'm, I'm very much not the characters I write because I'm a guy who's on the internet too much and spends too much typing. But um, it's certainly an archetype that I interested in that i think there's there's value to it i i've got there's an interesting thing somebody once said and by somebody once said, i mean like a comment section that um that he had known or that his thought that he showed it to his dad and his dad said that he had known many men who were like buddy in in the story and i that was for what that that struck me as um I don't know, as a high compliment, but also kind of getting to the idea of like there some there should be a space for kind of about the worth of well just these people who are who you know have value and who I find kind of aesthetically like interesting or I seem to respond to for whatever reason. Yeah, they're great characters. Uh, the other story I read of yours is Campus Radicals, which I think I may have been privileged to read, or is it on your website? Yes, you are. I think we're I think we're the only two people on the space who have read it. So it's a good story to talk to about. Oh it. man, it's so. It... I thought I thought you meant Sky Burial, which I also really liked. Oh, thank you, thank you. That yeah. that one's available <laughs> on my website, so that one is um, a little bit easier to access. Well, Campus Radicals is is arguably maybe even better than Georgia Buddha. And there's a manly character who's a bit evocative of this guy. He made me think of uh, Michael Madsen meets like Thomas seven, seven or something. Do you want to talk about or say anything about this or should we leave it for this to, when it comes out? Uh, because nobody else has read it. Um, I might leave it at thank you for the high compliment. And I'm hopeful that, it will be available for a wider crowd in the relatively near future. Well, it's fantastic. And I feel very lucky to read it. Um, you and PCM, man, he talks about you a lot. I assume you guys collaborate or talk. Yeah, we, we've talked. We haven't talked in a little while. I think he kind of went on a, like a Twitter hiatus at some point. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I'm 
I've been trying to get a little bit less overexposure of a bird app because I think it melts my and everyone else's brains. Uh, but, um, he, yeah, he and I have definitely talked. He was definitely, he has shown me, I've been honored to see some of his stuff before he submitted. Um, oh, sorry, I, I just blanked out. Um, but um, he's, he's shown me some stuff before he submitted and he's looked at some of mine before I've submitted. He also was um, not for Campus Radicals, but for one of my other pieces, which may or may not be more widely available right now, that um, he was kind of inspirational in helping me kind of like put some thoughts together. So it's definitely been a nice, yeah. it's been a very nice um, little informal kind of chatting semi-collaboration. Well, his his uh, most recent story that was in um, Man's World in your work are definitely similar to each other. You, you have this uh, Southern Gothic vibe with these strong male characters that harken back to maybe an earlier time. So you guys are both doing really great work. And I want everyone in the audience before we go to Charles, take note of the fact that uh, this conversation is marked by uh, hushed tones and references to cryptic pieces of work, because this is a man who is under contract with a publishing company. So, you know, this isn't just posting shit posting on the internet. This is uh, a real opportunity here to, to get your work like legitimized in, in the way that every artist wants it to be. So, and you know, VN worked really hard to do it too. Uh, he's no slouch. So Charles, I, um, your piece almost made me cry. I'm not kidding. It, it's fucking wow. stunning. It's absolutely stunning. There's no other word for it. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, I don't. Know, do you want me to talk a little bit about uh, sort of what I was going through when I when I wrote it, or or something like that? Yeah, I mean, um, you were so patient to let these other guys go that I'm more than happy to just give you the floor and take it wherever you want to go. But uh, this piece is like, I don't know how old you were when you wrote this, or how much experience you had. But this is like top of the craft, expertly written on the level of anything I've ever read in my life. That's 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 extremely high praise. I, I really appreciate that. Um, when I wrote it, I was uh, I was in graduate school getting a PhD in, in English literature. So um, I was studying literature a lot, writing it, um, not not um not reading so much um, high quality prose, unfortunately, if you're familiar with the, the state of the academy, but, um, you know, trying to, to write literary criticism and scholarship that had something of a, of a personal voice in it. But uh, it was at a time that, you know, I was, I was in an extreme um, left-wing department at a very um, wealthy school, uh, surrounded by, you know, just, you know, coddled subversives, um, and feeling, you know, pretty disillusioned um, with the, the whole thing. Um, I kind of knew that the odds were sort of stacked against me and my interests. And, you know, I, I kind of knew that I didn't want to go into academia, but I wasn't sure what I was actually going to do with my life, right? And so, um, you know, I was sort of trying to figure things out. And, and this is kind of weird because it's not really the, the subject of the essay at all, which is about which is about um, you boatmen in World War Two and these kind of heroic German sailors who um, you know, climbed into, into these tiny submarines and, 
and you know fought um and uh, against you know increasingly worse odds and, and you know most of them most of them uh, died right but um that that context of me being in this program i didn't like and trying to figure out what i was going to do feeling like i had to hide parts of myself couldn't be honest with people that were supposed to be my friends couldn't couldn't um buy into the professional track that was being laid out for me i think makes the piece almost feel like 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 a, almost like a radicalization narrative a little bit um because it's not just a history of submarine warfare in the atlantic ocean you know between 1941 and 1945 or, or something like that it's it's um it's really a story about becoming obsessed with that topic and diving into it and perhaps over identifying with some of of the heroes and and, and the victims in in those battles and and what that what that did to me and sort of what what i you know, thought i was learning about myself at, at the time right and so I, I'd written this, um, one of my friends had, had, had read it and encouraged me um, while I was writing it, but then it sat on the shelf um, for a number of years. And I was kind of lurking on Twitter, um, following some of the people I managed to follow, read some of Zero HP stories. I was listening to your podcast, in fact, um, which is a, a wonderful podcast and everyone should, should listen to it. Um, and, uh, you know, following Lomez and heard about the prize and then submitted the essay and had to sort of uh, you know, create my non-identity to, um, to accept the prize. Sorry, you had to create your non-identity to, to accept the prize. Yeah, yeah. So I like, yeah, so like. That's, I, that's great. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> like so I literally came into being with the, with the, the tweet, the first tweets that, um, that we're announcing like the, the winners. That's insane. And you, Same. Oh, actually. that's amazing. I didn't know that. Well, look at this. Yeah, look I, what, I look literally what... wouldn't be here without, without, you know, Lomez. And I should also say, um, you know, Dr. Benjamin Braddock, uh, who was the, the nonfiction judge. Yeah, man, he picked, he chose very well. So you were listening to my pod and Lomez talking about the prize is what made you enter. Um, I don't, I, I, I remember like early on listening to the episodes with Curtis Yarvin, um, with Helios, you know, kind of before I, and then, you know, later on I would meet, you know, you know, obviously get to know Helios, um, get to know many other people that, that I'd heard speak on your podcast. So that ended up being really cool. I, I might've, I might've heard, I, I can't remember exactly if, if I heard Lomas talk about it before I entered or not, um. But certainly, you know, listen to his his episodes, um, you know, with, with you know close attention. Well, that's fantastic to hear. Uh, very reaffirming to hear. So, why don't you talk about the uh, the U boat obsession? Your experience going to the Outer Banks and seeing a, a destroyed U boat, and you you did a really good job of incorporating. This is one of the reasons why I'm saying this is such a masterfully written piece. So it's pretty short. I think it's less than 10 pages long. And you're able to, not comprehensively, of course, but you're able to give a broad overview of the entire uh, trajectory of the U-boat experience in World War II for the Germans, where they started out as like indomitable. And then uh, it, it pretty much all ended 
basically in disaster for various reasons. And even you even were able to touch on the fate of the memory of some of the ones who died and the the experience of some of those who lived on years after the war, even into the 80s. And you were able to somehow fit also in your experience growing up as an academic who was focusing on something totally unrelated, but all you wanted to do was, was study U-boats. So, you know, I don't know if there's anything particular in that uh, chronology that you want to focus on, but I think the experience at uh, the Outer Banks is a good anecdote because I didn't even know that there was that much action off the Outer Banks in World War II. Yes, yes, it was incredible. So and maybe we can talk about the Outer Banks. It speaks to a few of the the features of, of the essay. But basically, in broad strokes, like you say, the conceit of the essay was to um, kind of describe this sort of unfolding disaster um, that befell the U-boatmen and sort of mirror that with an, a, another kind of like spiraling down of this like increasingly dark obsession, right? Um, and and one that I that in you know is sort of a taboo subject, right? You can't you can't just tell uh, you know uh, well think you know right thinking people in in um, college towns these days that you, that you're that you that you're on your tenth book about um, your know, Nazi submarines, right? Uh, people start to look at you funny, and so it's something you can't you can't really be open about. And so I had this you know this fascination, but also this shame. And I, I, I we my family went my my wife and I went on um, a vacation to the Outer Banks after my sister had gotten married to uh, one of my good friends and both of our family and his family rented some houses on Hatteras and um, went out there. And it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting place uh, for those who don't know it. It's kind of a ribbon of islands that, that goes out into the ocean off the coast of North Carolina. But what's interesting about it geographically is that because it extends so far out into the ocean, it's not very far from where the continental shelf drops off into like very deep water. And so it kind of created this bottleneck long story short. Um, it created a favorable hunting ground for, for U boats. Many, many um, ships were sunk right off of the coast of, of North Carolina. Um, and, and a few U boats were as well. And, and I had brought a book with me to, to this vacation about this specific offensive, uh, Operation Drumbeat, when um, Admiral Dernitz had sent out all of these submarines to, you know, basically harass shipping right off the coast of America, um, including including the Outer Banks, and and I was sorry, I was, but but I, I had to hide it, kind of from my my family. I didn't really want them to know this is what I was thinking about, and so I would sort of read it secretly and kind of like pretend to be bird watching, but also imagining what it would be like to be, you know, scanning the, you know, the, the waves for a freighter or a, or, or a tanker or, or some other ship to intercept. Um, but yeah, so I, the, the Outer Banks thing was interesting. That was, I mean, all, everything in the essay is real. It really happened. Um, I didn't see a destroyed U-boat in the Outer Banks, although you can dive to them, but I did, um, you know, 
whatever like like we saw like the, like the cemetery where uh you know some people died in boats that were that were that were sunk by u-boats and, and things like that um but but yeah that was it's you know it's kind of an interesting um you know the, the essay itself bounces around a lot from campus life to the beach to um admiral Dernitz's funeral at the very end very very um sort of dark uh weird events um but um but yeah i don't know it was um it was it was it was a hard essay to write um i don't know if anyone here has ever read my threads i always really try to push myself um psychologically and emotionally um when when i write even even on just you know random um you know eso or, or schizo threads um, that that can also you know, be a bit of fun. I'm I'm also trying to uncover things in myself or expose things that that you know maybe holding back or or ignoring. Um, and maybe that you know I think just to ramble on slightly longer. Um, as I've got another piece, um, another long piece coming out in the print edition of I am 1776. That's, that's the, the third issue that's coming out soon. Um, and it also kind of goes along with a larger aesthetic project I have of basically tying some of our, our scenes, ideas and our aesthetics, uh, our ways of living and thinking to, um, to to real life basically to 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 ground them in in real life and in a kind of life writing i I don't want to simply write polemical essays arguing about politics i don't necessarily want to write extremely you know spurg-like philosophical argumentation um or even even like straight history i I want to my my ambition really is to find new ways of like blending memoir and autobiography in with the discussion of history um the discussion of you know philosophy and poetry and art and you know sort of capture the experience of of plunging into these other worlds and and how how it can change you and um and change change what you can see i can assure the listener that uh charles accomplishes this in his underwater essay uh, Lomas, great to see you. I'm glad you're here. Um, I, I kind of stumbled over a couple things you had said to me earlier, so hopefully you can clarify those in a minute. But before I bring that up, um, this is the perfect time for you to come in because last time you were on my show, you had said something that really speaks to what Charles was just saying, that you had noticed that there's a tendency for people to... Uh, sounds like you're out in a beautiful bucolic setting <laughs> yeah you can hear the birds yeah yeah i'm uh, in my yard here it's it's lovely you said that um you noticed that there's a tendency for people to have a take and then argue the take in their essays so it's like uh, the very standard writer's workshop of expository writing where you where you have a thesis and then you you argue the thesis in the introduction and then you prove the thesis and the, the essay is like a rolling out of the proving of the thesis where Charles is just talking about how, and you were saying you want to get away from that. You were, you were like mm-hmm. so- sounding a call for people to get away from that sort of uh, boilerplate style of essay writing. And it sounds like Charles is like picking, picking up the same, 
the same idea. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on on what you envision as an alternative to that, and if if what Charles was explaining is anything close to that. I hope we didn't lose him. Charles, could you hear me? What I was saying? Can you guys? Can you oh, guys yeah. can hear you? Can you guys hear me? My yeah, turn. Off. Good to go. All right. Um, so yeah, I think uh, what I'm asking for are writers move down one layer of abstraction maybe from this high-minded conceptual merely argumentative writing and what charles does so well in this essay is he includes his own personal narrative in there the danger to writers doing this is that it can become sometimes self-indulgent and navel-gazing charles walks this very fine line it's kind of a high wire act how he includes his sort of personal narrative in there. He's a character in the story. It's, it's part of the narrative. And his trials through uh, you know, grad school are kind of in the background, but resonate with the story of uh, the U-boat captains. And they're both kind of participating in a sort of lost cause. So there's conceptual overlap without it being explicit or heavy handed, it's really deftly done. The writer doesn't get sort of um, uh, worn out by the writer writing about himself. And yet the writer is a body in the material world in which uh, this essay is taking place. So it has the elements of good fiction while also being this nonfiction piece. It's very clearly an essay. It's got these incredible uh, sort of historical insights that you're not going to find elsewhere. So it's introducing the reader to new information and new knowledge. And, and my question for for Charles is, is how do you make these choices as you're writing? Is it something that just comes naturally? Or are you mindful about how you include yourself in these essays versus speaking strictly about this uh, historical episode? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that I've always been resistant to just sort of very abstract expository writing, um, probably from undergrad, um, where I had some professors who introduced me to the new historicism, um, which is just a school of like literary criticism, um, kind of the eighties, uh, Stephen Greenblatt, one of the, uh, one of the main figures, but one of the, um, key elements of this kind of uh this kind of uh scholarship one of the one of the sort of the stylistic ticks was that they would always start their articles and these again these are like academic articles about like shakespeare or whatever they would start their articles with this very vivid anecdote um about a seemingly unrelated matter you know like some random guy you know in, in a court case in like the late 1500s or something something weird happens and it becomes this like puzzle that then they try to explain and they identify some weird like cultural energy or dynamic happening and then they use that to talk about like literature and things like that but but i i sort of trained very early on um in my like t like late teens and early 20s um in that kind of narrative writing um so i've always been a, been a sort of like a storyteller i've always um en enjoyed uh, del delivering monologues to my friends um 
on, on a late night. Um, and I guess for me, I, the inclusion of the personal was, was sort of the, 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 the addition or the, like the second, you know, the, 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 the second ingredient, the, the, the spice to the, to the stew that I was, that I was brewing. And, and I don't know, it's, it's, it's really hard to decide what to include. Um, I'm fairly, fairly shy. Uh, so I, you know, every disclosure is, is a risk. And, you know, obviously I'm very aware of like the, the risk of, of self-indulgence, but also the, the risk of like e- exposure. Um, I, I think initially when I was writing, I was, I was writing for, uh, you know, the only person who read it was, you know, one of my really good friends and, uh, kind of felt like I could, you know, be, be honest and be sort of, um, and, 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 you know, sort of take those like disturbing risks, I guess. And since, and, and since I started writing, um, threads on Twitter, I think, um, people have, really appreciated the sort of like aesthetics that you can get um the aesthetic effects that you can achieve when you take emotional risks in in essays and in nonfiction writing and so yeah i've I've been i've been kind of encouraged by people um but you know people picking up what i'm putting down and uh not uh, (laughs) not making fun of me too much well it's great to have lomas here to talk to you guys about this and i know vn has to go I'd like to um, maybe go back to VN just for a second, but Charles, is this dynamic? You you, you wrote a piece for IM uh, before we go back to VN. I just want to ask real quick. You you wrote a piece for IM about uh, I can't remember if it was the ba- Battle of Stalingrad or a different uh, offensive on the Eastern Front, and you interspersed it with a speech Heidegger gave. I think that he gave during the battle, um, and it sounds like you kind of use the same technique, except instead of putting yourself in there, you put Heidegger and his philosophy in there. Is that sort of what you were trying to do with that? And remind yeah. me of the, uh, the battle too. I think it was. Yeah, it was Stalingrad. It was, it was the, the anniversary of uh, the, the end of the battle, which was this, um, anyone who doesn't know the story of the battle of Stalingrad should just read about it. It's one of the most important events of the 20th century, but essentially massive, massive German army invades, you know, gets bogged down eventually uh you know um takes over the city at great cost of life but then this the situation reverses itself and the exhausted german army becomes enveloped and surrounded and cut off and then they are on the defensive and hold out until you know the, the, the bitter ends right um but but yeah you're absolutely right um it was a, another sort of conscious attempt at kind of um uh maybe generic uh, experimentation or an experiment with genre where you're we're sort of, you know, telling two real stories, right. The story of this, you know, Panzer officer, um, Winterfeld and the story of this thinker, um, who is, you know, giving this lecture series during the, the battle and the siege and seeing, seeing if they could speak to each other, seeing where, um, where the resonances uh, between them were, but yeah, yeah, you're exactly right that it was another way of um, weaving two stories together to create a, a kind of a unique perspective. Lomas, did you have something to say? Yeah, just a couple of things. Uh, I don't want to step on VN. I know he's got to go, but uh, quickly, I I think we're you know you 
and all the best essays we got for the first prize. And again, for the second prize, there is that element of the author being on the page somewhere, even if it's sort of uh, in the subtext. And this is an important element for good essay writing, I think, at least the kind that we're trying to achieve uh, with this more sort of literary, quote unquote, style. And it's something for writers to think about um, when they're doing their own writing and to allow, I mean, Charles's essay didn't need a lot of editing, really any at all, but um, to allow an editor to look at it and, uh, you know, err on the side of including maybe more of yourself than you might be comfortable with and let an editor do the job of, uh, you know, taking out the parts of it that may be too self-indulgent or tip the story over um, and tip the focus over too much on the writer. But in a, in a first draft, especially, um, even one that might be submitted, uh, you know, make room for the editor to do work in, um, deciding where that right balance is. So, so err on the side of adding yourself into the story where you think it might be appropriate and add this kind of narrative element. Lomas, that, that reminds me, and, uh, we can bring wide dog and VN back in, uh, raise hands if need be. But, uh, I was, you said on my show, and I guess I couldn't remember which, which direction you said it in. You said that one of the contests you could tell that the people had written something for the first time ever to submit. And the other one seemed like it was stuff people had kind of laying around maybe for a long time that they submitted. I can't remember which, which was which though, the first or second. Uh, mostly for the first one. I think there was writing that sort of pre-existed the, um, the contest. And that was just based on the fact that, you know, the themes that were present in the contest materials weren't in the work itself. So there was some assumption that it might have been a little bit older. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, the theme is there to sort of guide re uh, writers in the event that they might be stuck or looking for something to write on. And certainly we're looking for stuff that highlights those themes. Um, but the first prize, I think we got a lot of stuff from writers where they've been waiting for a venue to, uh, you know, submit their work and, and hadn't had one as of yet. And so that's why I had the assumption that, you know, maybe people were, were submitting stuff that had been sitting in a drawer for a while. Well, it's great that you guys, I mean, I don't know if you guys discovered VN, if this is his first iteration as a published author, but the fact that he's sort of like your writer now is like exactly what I want to see out of this, you know, sphere out of this, um, out of this project, uh, not, not just passage, but the greater project of Twitter nons encouraging each other to create and put out content. And we, we, we gave a big shout out to PCM. I see he's here now. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, he's putting in the work too. So, you know, we had to talk to the audience about stories that VN wrote that he's like, under contract with so you can't see them yet which is great because usually the mo right is to like put it out for free on your Substack or something so this is like something real happening here and it's 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 exciting to be a part of yeah i don't want to speak too much on it but uh i'm i'm sitting on vn's manuscript right now and going through it and uh it's great and i hope to have it in shape where we can start promoting and and getting it out there for publication soon uh vian and i have to have a, a conversation about that this is probably not the appropriate venue but yeah i mean that that was the whole idea 
that we might find someone uh, or more than just someone, uh, several people, an entire sort of collection and community of writers um, who might come together over a shared sort of sensibility and sort of disposition and attitude toward the world that is otherwise totally closed off in mainstream publishing. So uh, that was definitely part of the uh, impetus of this project. Yeah, that, that was all. So uh, I don't know what else was going on. V was VN, before I came on, was there something else from him? Oh, hey, sorry. I think we were all just kind of, we all paused. No, I, yeah, time. I muted. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, VN. Yeah, sure. So thanks, Lomaz. Yeah, I had been talking a little bit, but it was kind of me saying there's something out there, but I can't really say anything more about it. So wait for Lomaz. I mean, you can feel free to talk about it as much as you want. And, um, but yeah, I mean, the way that we roll out these stories and like, I don't think there's anything wrong with submitting them on Substack uh, or whatever else. Um, I think people will want to buy this book and have these stories all in one place once they come out anyway. So, uh, but yeah, that's, that's a conversation that we'll have in, in greater detail at some yeah, point. This, the Substack model uh, is great and I, I use it, but I just wanted to point out that like anybody can do that, you know? But what you guys are doing, and people like Zero HP Lovecraft have like mega, mega success doing that. But um, what's what's going on with you guys? It's like it just feels—I don't know—it feels more real. It feels like it has this uh, veneer of uh, professionalism to it that I think this stuff needs, you know. And I also think it has an opportunity to to meet a wider audience as well. Um, so Vian, I know you have to go. Yeah. So I want to, I want to, uh, definitely get back to the content of wide dogs, uh, entry because we, we haven't talked about that yet, but I want to give VN the floor because he's the one who's time limited here. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry to be the, no, it's fine, man. It's fine. You guys each deserve, you guys each deserve your own episode. Really? Thank you. Uh, so the, Sorry, I had something prepared for this, and I've completely forgotten as soon as I have to come up here. That's do, about how I do, usually am. Doing it live <laughs> takes a lot of getting used to. It's much different than yeah. recording. It does. Oh, what I was going to say was, in my experience, having found the kind of having your work in your hands as sort of this physical copy, this kind of a real book, it's a, it's a very professionally kind of validating experience in a way that um, I'm certainly very happy for all my readers on my little um, my kind of little WordPress or um, Substack, actually, I think it's a WordPress, which is just if you type vnebert.com, I think it's still the first thing to show up. Um, that That's a great thing. It's wonderful to get the exposure. Um, I'm getting exposure uh, that I never would have without um, Passage. But, uh, but to look at your words on like real paper, professionally printed paper, it's a, it's, it's a really um, special experience. I have a question for VN. Actually, I've never asked you this. Um, a, I'm curious how you found out about Passage, the prize. And then uh, B, I'm also curious uh, other writing that you did before this and whether you had any published work or had worked had done anything as a writer in any kind of public uh, setting uh, before Passage? 
Cool. Good question. Uh, I think I found this. I think I was standing in line actually at a like a Tex-Mex place that you have to order by counter. And I was just kind of scrolling through Twitter. I was kind of just lurking. I don't think I even had an account. This was back when I think you could do that a little bit more easily than you can now. And saw it. Um, and I forget if it was you. You might have been advertising or it might have been somebody else in this sort of space. And I clicked through it and I had sort of this weird little thought. I had Georgia Buddha kind of sitting around and been on my hard drive for um, however long, maybe uh, uh, two or three years, maybe actually. Um, and I tried to get published actually in a mainstream, um, a mainstream like literary review journal type thing. And I uh, did not have any success had, which if I ever get doxxed, that might actually be one route to it. Um, that, the yeah, you know, I kind of got discouraged and sort of put it down, and kind of lots of stuff happened in my life, so it was easy to get distracted from putting out more work. But um, I had the thought that hey, this might be something that would be interested in what kind of what I'm putting out um, would be an audience that would be receptive to the story, and um, it will you know it, it went much better than I expected it would when I made that kind of a spur of a moment decision to. Dude, your, your, your work is absolutely perfect for this audience. It's like ideal for this audience. Uh, and Lomez, we brought up Campus Radicals very briefly, but these two stories are like, it's just like exactly what would be, you know, well-read around here. W- excuse me, well-received around here. And, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, that story, Vian, you just relayed, I mean, it is sort of brief as it was, in summary, is exactly what the point of this competition was, is to sort of find people like you. So, um, yeah, that's that's validating on both ends, not just for you as a writer to finally find a place to put your work, but for us to know that there's talent out there that's not getting their fair shake, uh, you know, in mainstream publishing or in more established like literary spaces. That's precisely why we started this competition. Thank you. And I've, I've been, it's, it's been a real thrill and a real honor to be a, be a part of this. I keep muting myself. Damn it. (laughs) I'm uh, giving PCM the mic here because I think it's only a matter of time. I'm assuming, Lomez, have you read PCM before? Yes, I have. I think Um, his work in in VNs goes hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, uh, (laughs) PCM uh, submitted to this last, uh, well, both, I think. Um, I know for sure this last one, and it was, uh, as with many stories, like one of just the hard decisions we had to make. Um, but well worth everybody's time to check out his, his work and, uh, and read it. And I'm sure very soon here, um, we'll be, uh, featuring something by PCM. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. He, he seems like a, a, a passage, uh, writer. Um, all right. So uh, not to abruptly change tack, but we haven't actually talked about wide dogs actual entry yet. And I really, I considered reading Geo's, uh, essay because i just reread it right before the space and it's really really good his essay on uh, wide dogs piece but i'd like to hear it in wide dogs own words first um because 
I think, do you think Geo got to the essence of, of your work? I think he definitely um, got, and first, and thank you, Gio. Uh, I'm really uh, grateful that he uh, um, uh, enjoyed it. And uh, I do think he picked up on a lot of what I was going for. Um, it, 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 he, he picked up that, um, he, he picked up that I was trying to paint like a total picture using, um, uh, different, uh, um, uh, combining, uh, figures, architecture, landscape into kind of a, uh, a total picture. What I'd add to, um, uh, kind of what Gia wrote about is, uh, in it's funny when submitting. Um, I didn't. I kind of didn't know how what I would do. Like, because it was I submitted a series of images, and I didn't know how it would be translated from that into a book. So I included like a very very brief artist statement, and just kind of spiced up the composition with some uh, text design on the border of like the images, which was uh, just an excerpt from just like. And the Alex Jones quote, you'll never destroy the human spirit. Um, and uh, that was uh, in saying that what I was going for is like a lot of um, contemporary art is very cynical in that it's um, taking, um, it takes archetypes and a very popular thing is just to take an archetype, take something from um, art history and subvert it and to try and like undermine it. And I kind of wanted to just go in the opposite direction and do something that had no, um, no vision to no like subversion at all. And was just very straightforward and genuine in that, like it just uh, create something that was like um, just a, uh, Sorry, uh, just kind of a straightforward expression of here is art that I think is um, aesthetically beautiful. You certainly accomplished that. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that people decry is the reactionary spirit of the right uh, that we're always belated. We're always sort of like following the left or we're following the progressives. And the whole you know, idea behind futurism is to start something totally different, totally new, and not not exactly... You know, I see a lot of possible influences in your work that I'll mention, and I'll ask if, you, if they played in to what you were trying to do at all. But not to redo the things, uh, the anxiety of influence, right? Not to redo what the past greats have done and try to recreate it, but to use it as inspiration to make something totally new, which I think you've done here. And I think Geo did a really good job choosing the three winners because it's sort of the spectrum of like the third place guy, King Salmon Fish's work. Uh, it's very, what's the word? He, there's like a deep fried meme as one of his uh, entries. It's very uh, online, his work. And it's very in the, in the conversation or in the discourse. It's like, it's like an artistic rendering of the discourse itself, which is great. It's a great thing to do, and I think we have to be reactionary in a certain way. But I think the only real way to actually exit the longhouse and rewild ourselves is to create something new. 
Um, so Gio did a really good job putting you two guys in there in the second place as well. Who his name is blanking me right now? I had the book in front of I Zach Brown, yeah. I think. Uh, so he did a really good job on that, but you, you, I mean, Gio mentioned DeKirico in his essay. I don't know if you've said that yourself, but I have to think. No, yeah, no, it's it's uh, definitely yeah, there, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely there. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, uh, DeKirico, uh, I love. Um, it is kind of like a jumping off point in um, terms of just having these kind of um, uh, scenes that are um, trying, it's trying to create like an imaginary landscape that could be. Now, what is the medium? Um, Well, go ahead. Finish your thought before I ask a question. No, I was finished. I was finished. Yeah. I heard you say, what is the medium? And I was going to jump right in. Um, Three, uh, 3d modeling um and rendering um and then a bit of digital painting over top yeah would you care to say what program you did it in sure um yeah i used a combination of programs i used um for the figures i and the drapery i used a program called marvelous designer which is a cloth simulation program to make kind of the drapery on the figures and uh, I kind of brought all my assets together in Blender, um, where I did the texturing and the rendering, um, uh, and um, and most of the modeling too on everything except for the drapery. Um, and then I brought those renders into Photoshop and did some digital painting on top of it to just um, kind of um, in certain areas like cover up some seams in the like where things look particularly kind of 3d where I didn't want them to and to add some texture to the compositions. You said you work in design professionally, but you also went to art school. So my, my whole thing on uh, my pod and some of my episodes where I decry, uh, you know, AI art and, and, uh, CGI and things like that is that, um, you can do this like commercially and not really be an artist. Like you, you just have to be a computer programmer, but you, you do have to have some, somewhat of an artist's eye and some artistic training, but it's clear to me that some of the people working commercially in this don't have that. And they're just like creating this very robotic art that doesn't have an aura. I don't even want to call some of it art. Uh, that is certainly not the case for your work and a lot of other digital art out there as well. So I'm interested to know what your experience was like in, in art school, if, if you had a certain focus and if you're trained formally and if you practice at all in drawing or painting or, or any other uh, traditional medium. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, I, I, I am, did formal training. I can draw um i can i can draw i can i can paint i'm not as good as um uh someone like zach brown who um is like a super um super high level academic painter but i'm a competent painter um i got into um uh digital art and specifically animation um because going into art school i my um 
I don't have an MA. I just have a bachelor's because I needed to get, I needed to work um, right away. And I needed to, like, it was, it was not an option to um, kind of like, um, I, I, it was, it was very much like a vocational school to me. I was learning a skill because I needed to, I needed to work professionally in my field uh, and make a living. It, um, so um, the best way to do that was just kind of pure like supply and demand. I just wanted to get learn programs and get a skill that was that no one else around me was doing, so that I could so that I could become more valuable in a commercial market. Which sounds kind of cynical, but I cared. But like. It, 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 in a way, it was the opposite because in art school, nobody. It was very much the the the, the curriculum was very much not um, focused on uh, artistic competency. Like people were, they did not care if people were good. They cared about the they cared about like the message of the work. They very much cared about, like just like you make art about these narratives about these like leftist narratives like that's where you make art about these subject matters and you get the scholarship for a master's degree and uh and it doesn't matter if it's good or not so in pursuing like uh, a career in commercial art you do need to i just needed to have a portfolio that displayed a level of skill um, and where I somewhat disagree with you is that in the commercial art world, people are like people make art that's robotic and good. I'd say that and and poor. I'd say that's a lot of the just being in it for a while. That's just a lot of kind of what I was reacting to in my in what I was trying to do for Passage Prize, which is kind of the the it it it's kind of grows out of the reason they're making the art, which is they're making um they're making just kind of like hollow robotic propaganda but the artists themselves are actually i can speak to this like in the in the commercial art world are incredibly competent artists and um if pointed in the diff in a different direction uh would make some pretty spectacular work they're incredibly skilled but um i i i, I and i'd say are in many cases more skilled than me but I just have a different perspective on why I would make art in the first place than they do. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, your your work, though, I mean, the the one that's the most evocative of the Kiriko, and I know Passage tweeted uh, some actual imagery. I'm even remembering as I'm looking through it, some of the stuff specifically that they tweeted in the original thread, the announcement of... Uh, of the winners. So maybe I'll go try to find that and put it in the marquee while we're talking. But uh, the one piece, I mean, all of this is evocative of the Kiriko, but the one that mostly calls him to mind, it's a woman. Now there, I also see a lot of Ed Hopper in here. Were you inspired by Edward Hopper at all? I love Ed Hopper. I love Edward Hopper. Um, I really like uh, in, in painting and in 3d art and even in animation i think i like shadows a lot i like uh like how shadows cast across the composition and like yeah well i'll find i'll see if this one was tweeted by passage last year but the one of the i think i remember it was uh, yeah, of her looking exactly. at the at the skyscraper across the horizon that's correct and it looks like there's a zeppelin on uh, just above the horizon there is yeah, a... <laughs> so you're 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 calling back to that era, 
um, in a futuristic sort of way. But the reason I'm bringing this piece up is because uh, it certainly has an aura. And its aura is rooted both in the past, but also like the imagination and in the, the imagination of a future. So why is this, why is this the future? Like, like why, why, why is this the memory of a golden future? I don't know how much you want to say about that. No, I can talk to that. Um, and this was actually something I kind of struggled with because I, I, in doing these, I, I, um, in my mind, they were always set in the future. But as I kept doing them, like there's not really something to like just in a, um, I guess, generic sci-fi way to indicate that we're in the future in these things, in these images. But I wanted to basically how I got there was it, 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 to it, to. I think the, the the first thought when entering a competition like this is to make something that is kind of rallying that's negative about saying how terrible the state of things are and kind of blackpilling. And I wanted to make something that is answers the question of like, why are we doing this in the first place? And I, and to answer that aesthetically and to say, we're, we, I, I, I pick these fights and I believe the things I believe and I kind of have this weird double life because I want to get to a future that is more beautiful instead of the ugliness that we live in. And I just wanted to create a jumping off point, a vision of like an just a, 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 just trying to imagine what that future could possibly look at like and just offer kind of like my just take on that and hopefully inspire other people to continue expand uh, to expand on that aesthetic uh just posit their aesthetics of what a better future would look like from the perspective of um uh, from a perspective outside of the degenerative um uh horror future that we seem to be hurtling towards every day yeah so one of the things I like is that you don't have anything too specific in here. This is much more um, affective. Like it, it speaks more to like the, the vibe of where we want to go. And it's not like pre prescriptive where you're, you're kind of um, putting so much into it to like, it, 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 it's, it's uh, how do I say this? Like it's more of a general feeling. Um, and it's very much a dream. It very much looks like you're looking into a dream, uh, which is perfect. You know, it's a dream of the future. Uh, I want to ask if there's any other influences you, you would like to name here, because there's something I'm seeing that maybe I'm reading into it. But before I put the idea in your head, I'd like to hear some other influences. Maybe uh, Ed Hopper and Takiriko, I think, stand out the most, though. Uh, in terms of influences, I I was for the figures I was uh, I was uh, influenced by just kind of like classical um, uh, reliefs of kind of how um, you'd get like uh, mainly in the in the one with the with the bull, which is that was the one I made the that was the first one I made um, of 
I, I was influenced by cl uh, classical uh, reliefs, like things on the Parthenon and, and things like that. Um, uh, just kind of how those those um, figures were posed. Um, in terms of um, uh, artists that I really, uh, I, I'm, I really, I don't know if it shows here, but some of my favorite artists are uh, post-impressionist post artists like um, Rousseau and um, uh, Cezanne. Uh, it's a completely different, um, completely different uh, look than w w the stuff I've made. But it, I, I do try and like take influence on how they like pose figures and create compositions. Well, I don't know if you've seen this movie, The Color of Pomegranates by Sergei Paranayov, I think is how you say his name. Have you seen that movie? I have not. Highly recommended. I won't go on a tangent about it, but if you watch it, I think it'll be clear why I'm likening your work to that film, because the film isn't really a narrative. It doesn't really have action. It's really just these dioramic uh, stenciled scenes of people posing with different artifacts. And one of the things the film does is it sort of, I think he's Armenian, and it evokes the Armenian history by having these uh, figures who are, who are very similar to yours in the sense that they don't have highly distinguished features and they have blank stares. And I notice that's one of the things about your work that jumps out is that these characters don't have these distinguishing features on their face. They almost look like mannequins, some of them, and they don't really have expressions, um, which, which is evocative of this dreamlike state. It's like they're conscientious of being in a piece of art as opposed to a scene that we're sort of privy to that you're, that the artist is uh, giving us a peek into um, and in that film, though, the reason why I want to bring it up, because I think you're doing something similar to what he was doing, uh, obviously not conscientiously, but the characters are standing with artifacts uh, from from Armenia, like a, 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 a ritualistic dagger or a piece of linen, a piece of cloth, uh, a skull with, a, with an ornamental headdress on it. And I think it's meant to sort of evoke the shared sense of history among the viewer. And it's almost like you're doing that for the future, though, for these, these future artifacts. Because you see urns in here and you see, uh, you see like Greek Doric columns in here. Uh, and you have this very like culturally specific looking garb that these people are wearing. But of course this culture doesn't exist. It's one that you've kind of dreamed up, uh, but it gives it this, this like cultural patina that is really nice. And it's really, uh, I think part of what makes the work stand out, even though these folks aren't from any culture from the past, they're, they're something wide from wide dog's mind. Um, so to call it, like the memory of the future, I think really, uh, I think it really fits. Now, just real quick for the listener, the marquee, I do have a picture up there. It's not the piece we were talking about, but I think if you look at the, at the picture in the, in the marquee, you can kind of see what we were getting at because all of his, all of these pieces have the same, uh, they're evocative in the same way, especially the one in the pick of the woman in the orange dress 
with the skyscraper in the background. Uh, that also calls to mind to Kiriko, who has these like pillars or ob- obelisks in the background. Uh, yeah, I, I'd also say as a reference, I was really into at the time I made these um, uh, um, neoclassical architecture, but like specifically, um, uh, not like government buildings, but specifically like skyscrapers from the late 1800s um, just had a, um, th- they were like kind of like, they they, they were the last like, grand ornamental buildings um and i was um really into them because they just seemed they they seemed um very they seemed very hopeful and uh when you're in a city um that is um you'll catch them in cities where they're surrounded by glass towers um and they uh really they they are I'm just kind of mildly obsessed with them, and I included some specific ones in the in the piece in some of the pieces. Well, yeah, I don't know. I'm Lomas. I don't know if Lomas wants to speak to this. If this this will be available more widely somewhere, uh, if if there's like an art book coming out or anything where people can see this stuff more, I couldn't find the original tweets from the Passage account, or maybe they were on Lomas's account. Yeah, the Passage account didn't exist when uh, we first announced um, this book. So I, I'm not exactly sure what tweets you're referring to, but if they do exist, they're on the Lomas account. But we published everything that Dog sent us. So everything that you might be referring to is in the book itself. As to the question of whether or not there will be future versions of this book or future editions, uh, that's something we're sort of trying to figure out at the moment. I mean, one of the... Um, you know, ways that we sold this and justified the cost was on the premise of scarcity and that people were getting something that that would be hard to come by in the future. So I want to respect that um, initial promise I made to people. On the other hand, I do really want people to see this work and um, it's really good and it's, uh, you know, worth people's money and attention. Um, So it's an open question about, how and where we might deliver this stuff. Maybe, uh, I don't know, who knows, maybe Wide Dog wants to publish uh, an art book with us and we can do something like that. But uh, as far as republishing uh, the Passage book, that is, that's something that uh, may be in the future, but, but is not currently in the works. You should, do a, uh, you should do something where it's like an audio recording of like, like different writers. Astral, I think you're muted yourself again. I do uh, while Astro's trying to no, figure no, out I think, uh, can... his his uh, boomer relationship to the tech. Let me just um, throw something in here uh, about our decision making with uh, with uh, Wide Dog's art. You know, I kind of stayed out of most of the judging, or was there just to um, sort of knock ideas around with the judges um, to think through some of our decision making. And when it came to Wide Dog's work, the truth is we initially weren't going to give him uh, one of the winning prizes because um, we didn't want digital art. And Gio and I talked about this and we thought maybe we should just stick to more traditional mediums and that having, you know, digital art would somehow compromise uh, the sort of message that we were trying to communicate to our audience and maybe undermine this broad aesthetic vision we had for, 
what art should look like. But the truth is that Wide Dog's work was so good and so dynamic. And it, it passed that sort of sniff test where as soon as you saw it, you recognized there was something important there. It had that kind of aura that, that uh, Asher was referring to. And so, you know, we, we reconsidered and thought this is just too good. It's so perfect to the theme. And um, what Wide Dog was talking about, you know, the, the opposite of blackpilling, which is presenting to readers this vision, an aesthetic vision um, that allows you to imagine a better place and a way out from the sort of arid cultural desert that we're living in. And, and it was just too good not to, not to choose. And it went from being on the outside of the prize winning at all to being like third place. And then we knocked it up to second place. And by the time it came to announce final winners, we just thought this, this is too good. Um, I mean, that's not to say anything negative about some of the other art. We, we had tremendous art otherwise. And Zach Brown's second place art could have easily been chosen as well. But um, Wide Dogs are very clearly attended to the themes of the first passage book. And that's ultimately what, what put it over the edge. Was that, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah I, I can think, hear you now. I think you can't hear Charles because Charles was speaking. Uh, so I think Charles. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I missed no, that. Sorry. I think if Charles, if you leave and come back, it will reconnect you to the mic. Um, was is Zach Brown's uh, an, a traditional painting? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic and dark. Um, yeah, and he does some really interesting stuff. He must use some kind of metallic paint. I mean, Wide Dog would be able to speak on this better than me, but it has a. There's, it's almost like there's some like copper inlay or some kind of metallic inlay, or it's in the paint somewhere. Um, and it just it has this incredible sort of vibrancy to it. Uh, it, it sort of sparkles off the page when you see it. And I'm sure in person it looks even yeah, better. Yeah, I can only imagine. Because uh, what, what you're saying is is very true. Um, it almost looks uh, highly textured, especially the one with the guy laying in the bed. The title is... Uh, I don't know if that's a moment. No. Well, whatever. I don't want to talk boat burial. I don't want to talk too much about it because people can't see it. <laughs> but but yes. Go to... Uh, p- People can find it at ZachBrownArt.com and it's Z-A-C-H BrownArt, all one word, dot com. And he's got some amazing stuff on there. All right, let's get... Uh... Yeah, Lomas, I didn't know that. <laughs> so I was hearing that story of the judging for the first time. <laughs> for the first time. Uh, it, was, it was really funny. Uh, when, I saw, when I saw Zach's posted, I was like, oh, I didn't like... No, like when when you're doing it live, I saw that. I'm like, okay, uh, that was fun, but I'm not going to win. <laughs> and, then, and then I was like, oh shit, that's awesome. Um, but so, yeah, thank you very much. And I'll just say that, like, with the digital art, is I thought a lot about like my first intuition was to just like um, go was to do paintings because I it just seemed like it was what would um kind of cynically it was just seemed like what kind of the project and the judging would want but then i i uh was thinking about it more i was like no i want to do the thing that i wouldn't get the chance to do and that i want to do and that in dig- I, I wanted to do something basically i just can't get this look else what else like 
I can't get this look other than in doing 3D renders. There's something about the way I can set lighting up in 3D and get just this kind of dreamlike quality from it that I can't get anywhere else. So I, I just wanted to do that. All right, so Charles, um, I wanted to ask you, like, you said you have a PhD in literature. Are you willing to say what what, what your focus was? Because you, you talk about writing your dissertation in this piece. Yeah, um, just broadly, uh, Renaissance literature in, in English, uh, the field that, that I was in. Have you found a way to incorporate uh, your your World War II obsession with into that at all? No, because I, I left academia um, and I went into, you know, work at a tech company, um, write for a living, but it has nothing to do with, you know, either a 500-year-old poetry or my other um, secret interests. So, uh, yeah, but but no, I, I, I mean, I think I use the, I, I think I, I, I tend to work in the same way, which... Um, I was a fairly undisciplined um, scholar. I read a lot outside of my own little subfields. I didn't read the books my advisor wanted me to. I read other books instead and um, sort of let things percolate and simmer for a long time until uh, they started clicking in my head and I felt confident enough to, to write. And then I would, then I would write like very quickly. Um, and I still, I still do that. And, in the uh the essays that i've begun writing after after winning the passage prize so maybe um you know i'm still a sort of a incorrigible uh, buyer and collector of books and you know i'm someone who writes in the margins and is constantly taking notes and just writing random thoughts in the notes app on my phone so uh, you know in some ways like um the intellectual training and formation and the methodologies of working have stayed with me and that, that maybe some of the habits of mine, but not necessarily, um, not necessarily the, the specific expertise. Although I will say when, if you become an expert in the European Renaissance, um, you will have to learn all about, you know, classical Europe as well. You will have to learn about the interaction that Europe's had with other places you know, in the world. And like, it's, it's a very good grounding in sort of, you know, the Western civilization what the western canon so um certainly part of like you know the pride i have in um being a person of european ancestry uh is you know grounded in in my expertise in the history of our people well that's well said um I think we might be winding down the audience is more than welcome to request now we can talk about art in general and the art right i remember the term art right came up and i was like yeah that's it that's that's what i want to be a part of like that's that's why i'm here and then it like lasted like oh three days and people started making fun of it and now no one says it anymore <laughs> but um i do think this cultural production is of uh tantamount importance uh pg keenan just left i was gonna have her come up i have her book sitting right next to the passage prize book in front of me um, but, uh, unless Lomas had something else to add, I'd like to kind of end the formal discussion on asking Charles to talk about 
some of the specifics, some more of the specifics in his essay, because you do two things extremely well and powerfully. The uh, you introduce the story, or you introduce the essay with a story about uh, a a highly successful U-boat mission, a covert U-boat mission early in the war. And then you later talk about a general who you named earlier. I can't remember his name because I, I never heard of him before who went down with the ship. Um, and the part of the, the essay that really got to me was right near the end where uh, his U-boat gets hit with a torpedo or a missile. And there's a fire that starts inside and they're being, uh, they're, they're being borne down upon by the, uh, the enemy and so the captain orders his crew onto the lifeboats and uh he salutes them from the cockpit or whatever you call it on a u-boat as they're floating away on the lifeboats and uh goes below deck and goes down with the ship and it's just the way you wrote it was just so moving so you know we probably don't have time for an entire dissertation on the trajectory of the u-boat war but uh, Germany started out in an extremely strong position and ended up uh, n- not really being able to gain that position back. And the U-boats ended up not really being a, a powerful force in the war for them at the end. It, it lo- sounded, sounds to me like it, they became a liability at one point. Um, so I don't know if you want to talk about that first mission, if you want to talk about the captain going down with his ship or both. Sure. Yeah, I can talk about that. Um, the, the it starts off with um, uh, Gunther Prien's secret mission. I think it's U forty seven into um, Scapa Flow. So this is right when England has declared war on Germany. And what they do is they they're like, we are going to. It's almost you know, it's like the sneak attack, but they're literally sneaking a submarine into the main naval base of like the British fleet and like from inside of like the little bay in like Scotland, like shooting torpedoes at all their battleships and then trying to like sneak back out in in a sub. Um, And, you know, it was like kind of considered this like impossible mission and they had to have this like extremely daring guy to do it. And, and so, yeah, that's like how the essay starts off. And then, you know, it's it's describing a part of the U-boat campaign that um, the uh, the sailors called the happy time when they had all of these advantages in, in technology and tactics. They had the best uh, submarines that could dive the deepest, that had uh, you know the most the most torpedo tubes and things like that. They were just um, being super aggressive, and and you know during the war there was this whole sort of technological arms race where um, the American and and British and Canadian navies were developing new tactics. And I think a lot of this is actually probably covered in, you know, told from the American and British side in um, the movie Greyhound with Tom Hanks, um, I think, uh, which is about a destroyer captain who's fending off U-boat attacks. But anyway, um, it uh yeah they 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 basically start losing start losing the war um they they lose air superiority which makes it really difficult for for U-boats to to move across the ocean these are really um not necessarily the first generation of submarines but the second generation you know they they can't stay submerged permanently they have to surface to recharge their batteries and things and there are all, all these different all these different things but um 
the the captain who goes down with the ship is an interesting figure. Um, his name is uh, George von uh, von Willamowitz Mullendorf, um, and he was um, actually connected to a very well-off old sort of Prussian aristocratic family. And the other naval officers who knew him uh, called him a, an old gentleman from the Kaiser's time because he was he didn't sort of uh, come into the navy during the third Reich, but during um, Imperial Germany and sort of had, it was a different culture, a different, a different, much different vibe. You know, these were people who owned landed estates and rode horses around like the sort of like the Polish countryside and and things like that. Um, And he had a, you know, just a, a, a different sense of honor and devotion. And I think I was just really moved by his story and, you know, the kind of scattered comments that some of the other commanders whose, whose books I'd read uh, had, had made about him. And I was just fascinated and struck by this image of someone who was so committed to this ethos and to this noble sensibility that had become obsolete um, in this age of like, sort of technological and logistics uh, heavy, you know, warfare. Um, this person who was committed to their duty, who understood, you know, the value and the resonance of, of choosing that kind of death and, and, and setting that kind of example. Um, I don't know. It was just it was a very, very striking moment. And, you know, as, as, so I, I had to find out more about him and, and kind of tell his story. Yeah. Well, you do a fantastic job. Um, I can't praise it high enough. All right. Well, I think we've done a good job covering all the, the work and your experiences, uh, for passage prize. I don't want to end it without, if someone has more to say, but, uh, I think that's a really good episode. This was a very fulfilling discussion. I loved hearing what you guys had to say. You're both uh, welcome to come on my show independently and talk about this more. Um, Wide Dog, I wanted to clarify, though, real quick, what I was saying about AI, uh, CGI art, and things like that, and you had mm-hmm. to defend your colleagues, uh, which I admired, but I, I wanted to say, mention, I threw... I'm not, I'm not even... No, no, no. I'm sorry no, to cut okay. you off. I'm not, even def- I'm not even defending them. I just think it's a miscalculation that, um, like, because the, 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 I'm, not, I'm not defending them as, like, upstanding people, uh, most of them are not, but I think it's a miscalculation to be like, oh, these people are just bad at, at art. I, I do think that that is a misconception, and a lot of the people uh, in commercial art are incredibly talented. They're just they just have a they just have a um, um, they they just the direction of the projects that they're working on is ju- is so misguided um, that it leads to like a very technically competent um a very technically competent ugliness well that's great insight and i have to admit that i am ignorant of the field and ignorant of the the the, um excuse me uh also ignorant of the industry as well so i totally accept that but i want to mention what i wanted to say and follow up with was i also threw in Mm -hmm. ai art not just CGI and graphic design, but AI art as well. So it's like purely computer generated by a prompt. Uh, I think Mid Journey is the only one I can name. I know there's a bunch that people use, 
Um, I think it looks cool, like in like a comic book way, but, um, you know, I said that I decry this stuff on my pod and I want to make it clear that most of what I decry as lacking in aura is, uh, the the compu- purely computer generated AI stuff. I don't know if you have any comments on that. I think we're pretty much in agreement there. <laughs> yeah, like it's um, it, it's 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 um, it, it in some ways it's too early to tell. I I don't know where you go from here, but as it exists now, it it, it, it I I I totally agree that it is. It's almost like an uncanny valley of art. Like I, it it, uh, it does la- It does almost always lack something, and I think it um, is also so dependent on the prompt of like what type of styles you're supposed to emulate or mash up. It's very difficult to create anything new with it. Yeah, I agree. Um, again, it looks cool in like a comic book sense, but it's not art in the traditional sense. It's technology. It's devastating for concept art painters um, who it just absolutely um, kind of like that style of like, of like um, fast um, Photoshop painting. It just completely, uh, it does nail that style, which unfortunately speaks to how paint by numbers that style became. But um, yeah, I think we're pretty much in agreement in terms of AI art. All right. Um, Before we end I want to make sure Lomez doesn't have anything else to say. Any announcements for Passage? Sure. Um, where we are in the second book, we are just finishing up edits of the galley proofs that we got back. Um, so there's one more round of copy edits to be made. And that book, uh, of which uh, Wide Dog is supplying the cover design, which is incredible, by the way. Um, that's going to be uh, coming up for pre-sale pretty soon. Um, we anticipate probably, uh, doing a similar sales strategy as last time, a, uh, smaller print run, high end first edition, higher price point, though there will be an additional perk with this one, which is we're going to be doing a live event and the purchase of the high edition book is going to function as basically your ticket to that event. Um, so we're going to be putting those on pre-sale in the next two weeks, I'd imagine. Um, if people want to make sure they uh, know when it's released, they can just sign up for our newsletter. Just go to passage.press and sign up for the newsletter. We'll be sending out a newsletter. And of course, on the Twitter, we'll be announcing that. And then at some point, we'll have a uh, paperback print run um, later in the summer, uh, as we did with, with this one. So uh, that's, the, that's what I'll say for now um, in terms of announcements. This book is every bit as good as the previous one, mostly new authors and um, artists, which I was really excited about. I was kind of half worried that it'd just be the same people recycled over again. Um, But in fact, we got new stuff. Uh, I think there's only maybe one or two um, repeat uh, contributors. So it's all brand new stuff, new blood. Lots of new ideas, new aesthetic vision, new styles, et cetera. And I think people will be really pleased with it. Awesome. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. Thanks for uh, allowing me to do these spaces. The, the mold bug unqualified reservation space was a ton of fun. I learned a lot. And uh, this was super fulfilling. So I look forward to doing more of them. 
And they'll all be coming out as podcast episodes too, by the way, in time. Question for Lomez. I, I didn't enter the uh, the second contest because I, I was I thought that you know maybe um, it's the passage prizes. It's like the Nobel Prize, and you can, you can only win it <laughs> once. Um, but you're suggesting maybe that is it, is it more like the Olympics, and uh, the uh, the winners should try to extend their streaks for as long as possible? Yeah, the latter. I mean, I, I, what I want is the best stuff, and. Um, what I would think would happen is that the different judges we bring in are going to have different preferences. So what I, was, what I would suspect is that the same people won't win the prizes every time. But, um, you know, Charles, I can fairly certainly say that had you submitted something, we'd be publishing it. So, yeah, I, I'd really encourage people to submit again um, and uh, just give us your best stuff. We want to showcase the very best that this space has to offer, no matter who it's coming from, no matter what the subject matter is, no matter what the aesthetic or stylistic vision is. If it's good, if it has that aura, if it um, satisfies the condition of truth telling, you know, if it passes the test of verisimilitude, is it, is it putting a mirror up to the world and showing us what the world looks like? Um, then we're going to publish it. Uh, and it, by definition, because it's saying something true, because there's some kind of artistic truth to it, it will definitionally be uh, something that supports our broader agenda as well. Sex so that's, that's what we're looking for. For slightly above the normal right, listening awesome. level. 